This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Anne Jones here, and this is Off Track, the show that takes you outside, all around Australia, and into nature. Today on Off Track, we're in Melbourne, not far north of the city centre, in fact, where there's a huge patch of open parkland. There's sports ovals and long grassy bits and a tall red brick wall encircling a very popular attraction, especially if you're a kid. And off-track producer Joe Khan lived out a childhood dream recently of being a zookeeper, or at least pointing a microphone at zookeepers to find out what a day at the zoo is really like. It was the coldest Melbourne morning so far for the year, and everyone at the zoo was lying low, waiting to see if the sun was going to come out and warm things up. Show that you care. Purchase some snareways to help save wild dogs and everything. One of the tigers was up and about early though. <coughs> Going to the zoo as a kid was the ultimate day out. You could never beat the wow factor of those big charismatic animals. Elephants trumpeting, gorillas grunting as they played with each other. And a lion weeing through the fence onto a poor bystander. Yep, that did happen back when the lion enclosure was such that a lion could lift a leg and aim the stream through the fence. But I always loved the smaller, quieter, more unassuming animals. Hi there. Hey, how's it going? Do you guys want to come around the back? Yeah. We'll see if we can get a bit closer. Awesome, thanks. One of those animals lives in a quiet spot at the back of the zoo. You can imagine people walking past the modest enclosure without a second look. How you doing? Very well, how are you? Good, I'm Nathan. Yeah, so... Sometimes they're really chatty, sometimes they're not so, don't say too much. But I'll bring them in here. These little piggy things are peccaries, and they are surprisingly adorable. <laughs> they're pretty similar to, like, a wild boar, a wild pig. they got that sort of bristly sort of coat, kind of, I mean, it's a little bit porcupine-like, but not quite as thick or hard as their quills. This is zookeeper Nathan. When they're threatened or, you know, if they're having a tussle with each other, they'll stick them up. A bit like a dog will put his hackles up, they do the same same thing, and all those spikes just go right up along the back, uh, and they'll make like a, a barking sound and open their mouth and show their big, big teeth. They've got quite large canines. I guess they're called collared peccaries because you see they're mostly that sort of dark, sort of browny black colour. And particularly on this one over here, you can see she's got quite a distinct blonde collar, I suppose, around the shoulders, around the neck. These three are actually the last peccaries left in Australia. So, <laughs> we're pretty lucky to have them still. So, they're not particularly old, they're all you know around eight to ten years old. I mean they can live up to sort of 20, 25 years old. 
in the wild you can see them in you know quite large groups up to 20 30 40 animals so that can be quite intimidating if you're in the rainforest and you hear you know 30 different animals making this barking or teeth clacking sound the main reason they have those defenses because they've got to contest with animals like jaguars that probably make a quick meal with a, a little peccary like this Peccaries are from South and Central America, as well as some of the southern parts of North America, where they're also called javelinas. And although they're distantly related to pigs, they're actually in their own separate family. And you know, <laughs> I guess you can kind of see already they've got like, you know, dirty little noses because they'll dig around using that nose, a bit like a, a little digger, and they'll turn up all the soil. So in the wild, they'd be eating a lot of vegetation, like roots and digging underground to get those roots. Some of these trees in here, so you've got these tall yuccas, um, which would be found in ranges where they are found in the wild. Um, every now and then one of those will just topple over because they've eaten all the bark and the roots out from underneath and then it just drops out. Of you can see that nose sort of twitching all the time. It's always sort of searching around for food. So we'll bury food out in the exhibit. We'll, we'll make little holes, put their veggies in there and they can always find it. They sniff it out, dig it up. a male white-cheeked gibbon and a leaf blower. While I was listening to the male gibbon call, the female with yellowy white fur and a black face was hanging on the cage watching me. who has black fur and a white face was only to be heard but not seen. Raylene Hobbs is an ectotherm keeper at Melbourne Zoo. An ectotherm being an animal that can't make its own body heat, so it relies on external sources of heat. Things like snakes, frogs, turtles and tortoises, giant ones. Now, I could keep talking about these guys all day long, so I should stop myself and maybe we can ask some questions. What would you like to know? Once Raylene has finished her keeper talk, I meet her in the giant tortoise's indoor den, where the heat lamps are blasting to warm up the huge ancient reptile. Can I have a little carrot, buddy? Can you see that? 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 Can you see that?
Raylene rubs the giant tortoise's legs to encourage him to warm up and stand up out of his tight ball. He really resembles a large rock, but as he stands and stretches his head out from within his shell, okay. you can see an animal that's full of quirk and character. So this is Little John, he's between about 1910 years old, so he's what we call an Aldebaran giant tortoise. At the moment he weighs around 188 kilos was his last sort of official weight. You wouldn't want your hand to get anywhere near that powerful beak, but he is slow going with the carrot. teeth at all. They have these kind of like gripping little bites or spines along the rows of their jaws. They've got this big sort of strong powerful beak at the front and so they kind of use that front of their beak to step into their food, use a little spikes to hold on to the food and they pretty much just swallow it whole um, and it pretty much comes out looking exactly the same way as it came in about five to seven days later. You know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, we knew that they were intelligent, but the level of intelligence was obviously still unknown. So it's certainly something that probably in the last seven to eight years we've really come a long way. They actually really enjoy it. Uh, they love a lot of tactile scratches. They love interactions with keepers. They are target trained. And even though there's six months in between each target training session, in terms of summer and winter, because I can't really do much with them in winter. As soon as I get that target out, they'll be like, bang, it's red, I know what that means, and they'll just come straight over. So that always really impressed me that first year when I did it, because I thought, they are just not going to remember this. It's been almost six months, but they were just straight onto it. So I think what we're learning all the time is that reptiles are a lot more intelligent than what we know, particularly these sort of tortoises and turtle species that have a really good memory, see color, just really into it. Yeah. Is it stuck on your beak now? <laughs> I can help you, but I just don't want you to bite me. I get I think that was a tortoise grumble. Listen again. There you go. Aldabran giant tortoises are from a small atoll north of the island of Madagascar, off the coast of East Africa. Little John may take his time with things, but speed isn't everything when you're over 90 years old. You're listening to Off Track. I'm Jo Khan, and we'll be talking about some of the ethics of keeping animals in zoos more broadly on Off Track next week. But today, we're just listening to the zoo to the howling gibbons and screeching lorikeets, and to the continuous babble from groups of excited school kids. By midday at the zoo, more of the animals are up and active and some are putting on a real show for the visitors. And despite the cold, there are still plenty of families and school groups navigating the paths and boardwalks through the zoo. The tiger we heard earlier in the morning is now pacing with purpose as he waits for his food to arrive. And this time, a not so gentle sound. Oh, oh, oh. 
he's tracking circles out to the water's edge in full view of the onlookers and then back into the cover of the bamboo. A hungry or maybe expectant tiger certainly makes for a powerful sound. But again, it's not just the big cats and the big sounds that make the zoo experience. Some of the smallest animals in the zoo can inspire the most wonder. The butterfly house at the zoo was one of my favourite places when I visited as a kid. I think partly because of the contrast between the cool, dry Melbourne air with the hot and humid interior of the room. but also the gentle beauty of the butterflies, the way they forced you to slow down and be still and quiet. Inside this small room, separate to the main butterfly house, there are hundreds of orange and black and blue and black butterflies filling the air. Kate is one of the invertebrate keepers at Melbourne Zoo. The orange and black ones are the monarchs, and then the blue and black ones are the blue tigers. So the species back of house are ones that we can't breed in the main display for one or another reason. So with the monarchs, they are quite disease prone. So if we breed them in here, we can manage that disease level. Um, likewise with the blue tigers, they have a, a little bit of a disease load with them, but they also need to be overwintered. So we put them into an environmental chamber that's at about 15 degrees um, for a couple of weeks, feed them a couple of times a week, and then when they come out, they're ready to lay eggs. Uh, monarchs and blue tigers are pretty similar. So monarchs are quite famous for their overwintering in Mexico and the Americas. Um, and they would do a similar thing here and same with blue tigers. They tend to have quite a big migration where they go to cool down in gullies and things. So it's not quite as dramatic as the American version. Um, but yeah, we have it on a bit of a smaller scale in Australia. So we do mimic that with blue tigers year round and with monarchs we do it in winter. So we overwinter them in winter, yeah. <laughs> Kate is tasked with the breeding, feeding and care of the butterflies, as well as beetles, cockroaches, praying mantis and leaf insects. And breeding butterflies means not just looking after the adults in flight, but also when they're caterpillars, making sure they've got lots of leaves to munch on. One of the butterflies bred at the zoo is... The Cairns birdwing is Australia's largest butterfly, so the caterpillar is also quite large. Uh, these ones are quite late in star caterpillars, so they're big, they're black, and they have spines on them. Uh, the spines are there to deter predators. They're not actually really spiky, they're actually quite soft. Uh, but they also have uh, little orange spots on their spines and a couple of yellow ones as well. So they act as warning signs to predators that they will be quite distasteful to eat. Um, and certainly here, we don't get many other things eating them. <laughs> the feeding caterpillars make the teeniest, tiniest munching sounds. 
They also have a really nifty little organ called an osmotera, which comes out of the top of their heads, um, and it squirts a distasteful chemical at predators so that uh, predators don't want to eat them. These ones will almost be ready to pupate. So the top ones here, they're wandering around because they're looking for some new leaf. Um, once they've had a big feed, I think these ones will be ready to pupate. So what happens then is that they attach to either a leaf, a stem, or onto on this potted plant, we've got a wire um, climbing frame. Uh, so they'll attach there with their tail. Then they also make a little silk girdle, which looks like a lasso and they put their head through the girdle so that they've got a girdle attachment kind of at the waist and then also silk attachment at the tail. And then they'll sit there as a pre-pupa for a couple of days while they digest all the food that they've eaten, get rid of the stuff that they don't need, and then they'll molt into the pupa stage. So the molting to the pupa takes probably about an hour or so, but then it will take a couple of days for that pupa to then harden off. In this species, for them to then emerge as a butterfly, it'll be another maybe three weeks, maybe four. Depends on temperature, also how big they are, lots of different factors, light as well. Over time, it's quite long because they're a tropical species, it's multiple generations in the year, so they just keep reproducing. Invertebrate keeper, Kate. A great pile of branches and hay has just arrived for the Asian elephants. You might just think of trumpeting when it comes to elephant sounds, but there are so many more, especially at lunchtime. There's huffing and puffing and snorting. Plus the sounds of elephants weeing. Farting. And chewing. So great. And there's a deep grumbling sound. think back, besides the bird aviary and the butterfly house, when I came to the zoo as a kid, there was nowhere you could walk into an enclosure and stand right next to an animal. When you are inside, please don't touch the limbs. Give them some space as they are wild animals. If you've got any questions... But these days you can come face to face with the wide-eyed, ring-tailed lemurs without travelling to the African island of Madagascar that they call home. And it means you can get close enough to hear these sounds. The ring-tailed lemur is a small grey and white primate, recognisable by its big orange eyes and often erect black and white striped tail. Their uniqueness is thanks to thousands of years of evolution taking place on the geographically isolated Madagascar. 
this lemur needs his personal space. I'll give him a yell from the roof and then we'll start bringing him in. Are you actually going to yell from the roof? Yeah, yeah, I'll just call him over. I mean, they're hanging around anyway, but... They know it's been fun. Alrighty, come on! That's one of the primate keepers, and he's on the roof yelling out to the gorillas to come into their inside pens for dinner. Inside, they've got walnuts and veggies and some peanut butter waiting for them, along with toys and other mental enrichment activities. James is one of the primate keepers here who works with these western lowland gorillas. We have four gorillas here. We have the big silverback Atana. He's 20 years of age and he weighs about 185 kilos. We have his girlfriend, Kimya, who's 16 years of age. Um, and then obviously their offspring in Kansi, who's six. And then we have the honorary grandma of the group in Yushka, who's 50 years of age. So the oldest girl in the world is about 64 years of age. So Yushka's doing quite well for an old girl. And There's some grunting and growling as the keepers take a huge bucket of veggies out into their enclosure for them. Although I'm told the gorillas are being pretty quiet today. The silverback gorilla, Atana, stands up on his back legs and slams the metal mesh between us. There's nothing quite like looking into the eyes of a 190 kilo gorilla to remind you of your place in the world. I'll leave you with the sound of this group of otters whose squealing closely resembles the internal squealing of joy I did the entire time I was at the zoo. Still a kid, I guess. Squeaking otters, which sort of sound like balloons being squeezed of their air, and off-track producer Joe Khan. And that childlike feeling is something that people can relate to, I think, when you think about the zoo. But zoos themselves have really problematic histories rooted in colonialism, and themselves, they're incredibly varied. From the large ones, like Melbourne or Taronga, through to the huge privately owned zoos, maybe like the Australia Zoo, and and they go down in size, right down to roadside attractions. And where's the ethical line with zoos these days? I mean, is it enough of a reason to have animals in captivity if it's purely because we humans enjoy seeing them? Is it enough of a reason? 
Next week on Off Track, we'll be talking more about modern zoos, asking questions like that, like what criteria makes it okay for an animal to spend its life in captivity? And where is more safe for endangered animals? In the wild or in the zoo? Thank you to Melbourne Zoo and especially Michael for having Joe out to record. And this is Off Track. I'm Ann Jones. And meet me in the car park at the same time next time because that's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.